Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Hello. Um, please stand for today's scripture. Okay. This is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. The Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and under all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Caden. One of the uh, hardest things of the last couple of years, really the last 18 months and counting, has just been how uh, intense social, political issues have been in and around in our society and uh, distorted sort of the views of uh, what we think Christianity is or, or what your neighbors might think uh, Christians, Christians are about. Um, are, are they for this political uh, agenda or are they against this political agenda? And the distortion has just left a whole cloud of confusion about what really is a Christian what does it mean to be a Christian? What was a Christian like? And so what we're going to do in this church uh, throughout the fall is look at the Gospel of Matthew to sort of address and answer and maybe even re-clarify for ourselves so that we can be this to our neighbors and to our city. What is a Christian? But we're not going to look uh, so much at who Jesus is and what he claimed to be and even what he even says to believe, but what he says to do about how we're to live our life. In a word, uh, what we're going to look at is what Jesus calls it, what it means to be his disciple. And to do that, we're going to look at this, uh, one of the most famous pieces of literature that we have from the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount has had tons of commentary, tons of thoughts throughout the history of the church and world alongside of it. And it has been something that uh, a lot of people, even outside the church, have found incredibly value and useful and important. And it's even led a lot of people to sort of think about religion and spirituality this way, that it, it really doesn't matter if you believe in sin or atonement or miracles or resurrection or anything like that. What really matters is if you're just a good and loving person. That if your sort of moral uh, account outweighs your, your bad account, and you're generally just a caring, loving person, that's, that's what really matters. And that's who, who God really accepts. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones was a a British preacher. I may have mentioned his name before in the middle of 20th century at Westminster Chapel in London. He's got an enormous study on this book on the Sermon on the Mount and addresses this very idea. And he says, look, anybody who, who reads things in the Sermon on the Mount, like turn the other cheek, you know, or forgive, or judge lest not you be judged, and thinks that the way to God is, is by basically being a good person, has never read the Sermon on the Mount. He said, because if you actually read this, especially on the premise uh, of this is essentially about being a good person, you ought to conclude at the end that this is impossible. And that, that your, 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 your mentality ought to be, Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Deliver me from this. So, so how in the world can we read this, hear from it, and it actually clarify us in, a, in a, an empowering way? in an encouraging way. And the only way to do that is to begin with the Beatitudes. Because what the Beatitudes do is give you and I the foundation and the ability to go through the rest of what Jesus has to say about what it means to his disciples. So that's what we read this morning and we're going to look at. And the Beatitudes give us three things that I want you to uh, highlight or take into your life for today, for the rest of your life, so also we can go through the rest of the study together. And that's that they give us uh, kingdom qualifications. They give us a countercultural promise. But thirdly, they give us a way to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. First, uh, they give us kingdom credentials. I mean, th- this is famously called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, uh, what they are, are, rather than like a first chapter of a book, uh, they're meant to be uh, like a prerequisite reading for the entire, the entire series, the entire book. And, and, and you're meant to sort of read this not as how you become a Christian, but that if you're a Christian or if you're becoming a Christian, these things will be true of you. These will be happening in and around your life. So let's just go through these in, in, in verses 2 through 10 is what I'm looking at. Let's just sort of walk through these together. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does he mean here? Well, there's a lot of places in the Bible where uh, God's heart is near to the poor, but here that is uh, qualified by, that's not the economic poor, but it's poor in spirit. As your average person uh, really does think of themselves as a sort of middle class in spirit, that I am... um, I'm not rich. I don't have everything to offer God. I don't have everything to sort of bring on my resume, but I'm not bankrupt. Uh, I, I, I've got some good, you know, some bad, but the good really outweighs the bad. But, but Jesus here is saying, look, if you're a Christian, what you are is you come before God with nothing in my hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. That, that you are utterly hopeless on your own. There is nothing in your spiritual resume, there is nothing in your belief, in your inclinations that ever merit God's favor towards you. You are are utterly lost on your own. He goes on, he says, but blessed are those who mourn. That is, they don't just acknowledge the reality uh, that you are poor in spirit, 
that you are broken, but you mourn over that. You don't hide that. You don't suppress that. You don't caveat that. You mourn over your brokenness. Um, Paul says it so well for us uh, in 2 Corinthians 7. He says this, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. You understand what he's, he's distinguishing here? Has somebody ever, you ever gone to somebody and uh, showed them something uh, going on with themselves? And they begin to mourn. But their mourning is more surrounded in the idea that they're caught and embarrassed. That they are humiliated in front of you and not over the very thing that you're highlighting for them. But Paul says what godly grief is, what godly mourning is, is not the idea that you caught me or, or I feel embarrassed in front of you. It's that the thing that's going on in my life that you showed me hurts me because it hurts you. Because it hurts us before God. And then he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a story um, that Billy Graham, when he was going to uh, say goodbye to his mother, was there in the hospital with his uh, siblings. And uh, right before she died... Uh, she had a very intense grimace and kind of uh, a grunt in pain. And uh, one of the siblings just said, uh, what do you, what, what's going on with her? What's happening to mom right now? And, and Billy Graham just said, I think she's before the Lord and saw the truth about me. See, what a kingdom qualification is, is if you're a Christian, you're becoming a Christian. The reality of who you are, that your sin and your brokenness it, it, it is, is not something you manage. It's right up front in your testimony and your story. But then he says, blessed are the meek. That is, blessed are the humble. It, it, and humility here in the meek, meekness, is, it's not a lack of assertiveness. It's a lack of self-assertion. That you don't live your life uh, making sure everybody knows all the wonderful things that are lovable about you. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, the structure of these Beatitudes is that there's seven. And there's sort of a ladder up, one, two, three, and a peak, and then there's one, two, three down. And the hunger and thirst for righteousness is sort of the consequence of the, the first three, and then a motive for the next three. And what he means is that if you are poor in spirit and you are mourning your sin, producing a humility and lack of self-assertion, what will happen is that you will then become a person who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I mean, do you know somebody who, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you know somebody who, um, like when they get a craving for food, um, they're hungry, and, and you don't go, well, maybe we should go to the grocery store. Or what do you want to eat tonight? It's like food now. Uh, I, I, I feel nauseous. I've got a headache. I, I've got 
I've got to have something right now or I'm going to punch this window. Jesus is sort of uh, saying, look, godliness, what a Christian is, if you're becoming a Christian, it's that his character, his glory, who he wants you to be, you start to have that kind of thirst, that kind of longing, that kind of pursuit for the life that he's drawn out for us. Then he goes on, he says, blessed are the merciful. That is, that you don't give people what they deserve. You're patient with their failures. Blessed are the pure in heart. As if you're becoming a Christian, or you're a Christian, you're beginning to live without compromise. The double living, the, the two lives, begins to fade less and less and less. He says, blessed are the peacemaker. And that, it, that it's more than the absence of no conflict. But it's the idea of pursuing reconciliation without winning. And to some degree or other, if you're a Christian or becoming a Christian, those are happening and real in your life. Now, let's draw some quick uh, observations of those. A, these qualifications that Jesus is giving us are holistic. I remember uh, one time we, we went to a formal thing with my family, and my brother showed up uh, in a half tuxedo. And what I mean is he had on the jacket, uh, a shirt, no tie, uh, no cummerbund or vest or anything like that, and he was wearing flip-flops um, with his tuxedo. And my dad was like, no, <laughs> you, can't, you can't dress like this. You can't wear part of it. Look, the, the Beatitudes, these kingdom qualifications, are not meant for us to be read as like, well, I'm good with this one. Or I'm doing well with this one, but I struggle harder with this one. Like, remember, remember from our study in Revelation, seven in the Greek is a whole number, is a complete number. And Jesus is giving us seven for a reason, because they're all a description of what a Christian is. But these are also internal. Look, it's, when Jesus says poured spirit, meek, pure in heart, it's a little bit you know, self-explanatory and obvious to us. But that the nature of a Christian is not just external behavior. And it's not just observable realities in your life. Look, many, many people in our culture today and around us in our city think what a Christian is is just somebody who gets up on a Sunday morning or somebody who owns a Bible or somebody who, who, works, who votes a certain way or just acts or dresses a, a particular way. All of the things that Jesus gives us here are in some ways undetectable realities. They are things that, are, that, are, that must be happening to you which means what Jesus is telling us is that in Christianity, before you ever do, you must be something, which is why he begins here for this entire sermon on how we are to live our life. Before you ever do all that, live this way. This is who you are. 
they're holistic, they're internal, they're also relational. I mean, all, all of these, to some degree, have a relational context for them to be lived. So, you know, it's easy you know, to say to yourself, well, yes, I am poor in spirit. But it's a whole other thing when somebody close to you gives you a mirror to your life and shows you what you're struggling with and what you may, you've been blind to in your family. You know, it's rather easy to say, yes, I'm a peacemaker. I hate division. I'm against fighting. I don't like conflict. But it's a whole other thing when you have someone in your life you can't imagine forgiving. And this reality needs to be present in your life. See, what relationships are is somewhat of a litmus test to the reality of these things being true or present in your life. And these kingdom qualifications that Jesus gives us, look, they're they're not the ABCs of the sermon. They're actually the A to Z for the whole thing. And without these, the rest of the sermon will just be strange, exhausting, burdensome, and even at times insulting. Have you ever had a day um, where you lost your keys, you know, or, or your wallet, or your phone? I mean, when that happens to you, I mean, you don't just go, oh, well, I'll find them tomorrow. I got to move on to the next thing. I mean, you can't do anything else without that. I mean, if you lose your wallet, you don't, you don't just move on to the next project. Everything stops. But it's, but it's also this like subtle thing in your life where you don't every morning go, thank goodness my wallet is on my bedside table. You just assume these things are with you and a part of your life. But without them, you cannot go into the rest of your life. Look, the kingdom qualifications that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes are as basic to the rest of Christianity as your wallet, phone, and keys are to your daily life. And that's what he gives us at first. But secondly, what he gives us is a countercultural promise. Now, when we examine those Beatitudes in, in verses 2, two through 10, what you'll begin to notice is how much they stand out against the way that the world expects life to be. And Jesus is intentionally doing this throughout the entire sermon to stand out Again, about how we intuitively think life will work. I mean, consider for a moment the story of the world. here's, Here's the story of our world. Blessed are those who have their life together. Blessed are those without sad things. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are those that attain the good life. Blessed are those who come out on top. Blessed are those with great reputations. Blessed are the ones who watch out for themselves. Blessed are those who are liked by everyone and comfortable in this world. I mean, the story of our world is get your life and keep it together, watch out only for yourself, and do whatever it takes to be liked and comfortable. 
And everyone sort of intuitively lives, like if those things are present in your life, life will go well for you. Like you, you will smile more than you'll be sad. You'll have better days than harder days. If this is the way to find joy in the life that we're all after. But Jesus comes right into that narrative and says these things, blessed are the spiritual dropouts, blessed are those who are drowning in sorrow, blessed are the ones the world calls weak, blessed are those who are taken advantage of because of their kindness and patience, blessed are those who are thought weird because of their devotion to God. Blessed are those who seek peace over payback. Blessed are those who are mocked and excluded. I mean, the story that Jesus lays out is, no, 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 the way to do life is to receive grace, to give grace, and to suffer with grace. And what's fascinating with all, that in all of those qualifications in that story is this promise that comes with the beginning of every one of them. Blessed are those. Blessed are the spiritual dropouts. Blessed are those who are mocked and excluded. Blessed are those who are taken advantage of. Blessed are those who, who do not seek payback. Ian Duguid, who's an Old Testament professor, at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, has a book on this material called The Hero of Heroes. And he's a fantastic Old Testament scholar, so he's qualified to say this. He says, look, in the Old Testament, the word blessed shows up all the time, and it, but every single time it shows up, what it really means is uh, the favored person or the enviable person, the person who, whose life is in such a way that we all should think, I wish I had their life. Or I wish I was living like them. Or whatever's happening for them, I need to imitate that and bring them in, into, into my life. And so when, when Jesus begins this sermon and says, blessed are those, Dugan says, we ought to expect the next words out of his mouth to be the profile of a hero. Or the narrative of this exemplary person we all want to do life like. And he says, so it's utterly profound and subversive when Jesus begins to outline a character in life that almost none of us would envy, that none of us aim for. But he says, this is the way of the kingdom that every way that you and I envy and chase and pursue is actually upside down. And his upside down way is actually the only way to find life and joy and to taste the kingdom of heaven. Uh, during quarantine, this was a fun part of it. When we were all at home at the beginning and there was nothing, there was no sports on, and ABC was releasing that documentary about the Chicago Bulls team in the early 90s. And it was, it was like one of the, like it was like the only thing on TV. There was no sports, no other live TV. So, so this was happening. And uh, as, as they told this about the Bulls dynasty, and they were trying to sort of show to us why were they so successful. 
Uh, one of the things they said at the beginning that Phil Jackson talked about, he said, you know, the entire NBA coaching style and, and team unity is, is built on a lot of these sort of Western uh, philosophical principles. Like your gifts, finding your talents, and bringing those, you know, into the organization. He said, but what we wanted to do uh, the exact opposite is turn that, all those principles upside down and base it on Eastern philosophy. That is, uh, that, that the team matters first. And you need to come in, no matter who you are, and put down your gifts and put down your talents and put down your, your desires and submit them to the idea of the team and find your role in that. Now, let's not get caught up in the, the philosophical ideas of, the, of two teams. But what was fascinating is he says everybody in the NBA did it this way. And what made us so successful, what made it work, what made us thrive is that we did it this way. Look, and Jesus is giving us this countercultural promise. He says, look, everybody in everything around you, in every part of society will tell you the way to live life and succeed and thrive is this way. But my kingdom actually comes this way. Completely upside down, against the grain. And the, the last two years, again, so many political, divisive, cultural problems that are around us. And what's killing the church is how many of us here and around here are navigating those agendas, those divisions right side up trying to answer these questions and walk through them through the story of the world. Which is why there's people out there who profess the name of Jesus that you can't imagine being friends with and sharing fellowship with. Because we're obsessed with winning and not with peacemaking. Because it's blessed are the right and not the meek. Because it's blessed are those who know more and not blessed are the poor in spirit. But but Jesus is saying, my kingdom and the way to joy in life, it only comes upside down. And it only comes through people navigating the hard, divisive things through people embracing the kingdom qualifications that I give. Uh, Sean Groves, he works for Compassion International said this so well. He said, I'm thankful for the Josephs who govern from Pharaoh's side for the good of the masses. For the Esters who influence the influencers and change the trajectory of history. But where are those people called by God to step down? To leave behind? To earn less? To influence fewer? to follow, to die. See, does God only call his son to downward mobility? Or does God call me downward too? And I fail to recognize his voice because it sounds too backwards. Look right at the beginning of a cultural, countercultural entire lifestyle. Jesus is giving us a countercultural way to begin. 
that the enviable life is upside down. He gives us kingdom qualifications, a countercultural promise, but thirdly, what the Beatitudes give us is a way to hear the rest of the sermon. Jesus, so he begins this entire sermon, blessed are these. And Charles Spurgeon, in his notes on the Sermon on the Mount, he notes this. The Bible begins with blessing. In Genesis 1, God creates mankind, and it says there he blessed them. And then the Old Testament begin, or excuse me, ends with curse. And then you have the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus begins his ministry, and the first thing he says is blessed. And the reason he's beginning here is he's wanting to, to right away show that the way of his kingdom and the way to this upside-down life, it's not through the religious Pharisees. It's not through just law obedience. It's through gospel. See, with the way the, that the Beatitudes do for us with the rest of the Spirit Sermon on the Mount is that it shows us that it's not keep this and then you'll get the blessing. But it's that you get the blessed. You receive the blessing and then you go live in a lot of this. Let me explain. We get a clue with this at the beginning. Look in verse one. We're told this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Now, why is Matthew making these notes? So, what the Gospel of Matthew does in the most profound way is that it answers the question about who the people of God are. Matthew is going to say, the people of God are no longer actually the nation of Israel. They are the church. And the way I'm going to show you that is I'm going to show you that Jesus is the true Israel by retracing Israel's steps. So if you look back in the Gospel of Matthew, here's how it begins. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And it says the son of Abraham and the son of David. Who are they? They're the two biggest characters in Old Testament Israel. And then what you have in the genealogy, because it's, it's a theological genealogy, you have seven names in a pattern, and then it begins a new one. And you have six sevens. And then it says the birth of Jesus Christ, the seventh seven. You know what the seventh seven was in Israel? It was the year of Jubilee. To say the birth of this man is the year of Jubilee. And then the next thing you have in the, in the gospel is it says Mary and Joseph are going to have this baby, and Herod wants to kill every firstborn son. And what does that remind you of? It reminds us all of the beginning of, of Exodus, when Pharaoh wants to kill every firstborn son. So they flee, and they have to run. So they flee to Egypt. And then Matthew quotes Hosea, and he says, out of Egypt they called my son. When they can return back, 
out of Egypt comes the son, just like the Exodus being delivered. And the next thing that you have in the gospel of Matthew is Jesus' baptism going through the waters of God's deliverance. What's the first thing that happens to Israel after they are delivered from Egypt? Through the waters of the Red Sea. And then what happens in Israel is that after they are delivered, Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments to talk about who are the people that God has delivered supposed to be. So what's the next thing after Jesus' baptism and trial through the, through, the, through the wilderness? Is him going up on a mount and giving the new law. And what Matthew wants you to think is that this is the new Moses, but is also the paradigm for how we read the new Moses. Because Exodus works this way. It is not the giving of the law, and then God will deliver you from, from Israel, excuse me, from Egypt. It's not that if you obey this law, God will see your pain and see your suffering that Pharaoh is causing on you, and he will deliver you. It's that God came to Israel when they didn't even know who he was, when they wanted nothing to do with him, when they had no idea. In fact, when Moses goes to Israel, he has to tell them who he is and who the God is. He says, I am who I am sent me. And God goes and sees their suffering and sees their pain and sees their lostness and delivers them and then he gives them the law. And so when Matthew begins with blessing for Jesus to stand up on the same kind of mountain that Moses stood up, what he started saying is he says, listen, listen, none of the things that Jesus gives us are how you earn God's favor how you earn your way into the kingdom, how you earn your way into the Christian life. It's that God comes to you out of his grace, out of his sheer love, out of his his dear, intimate mercy, delivers you, and then he calls you into this life. And How do you you get this blessing? How does the blessing come to us? Because it's a strange blessedness, and it's a very strange thing to envy until you realize it's probably not talking immediately about us, but about Jesus himself, who truly was poor in spirit, who was the morning Lord himself, who was meek, who hungered and thirsted for for God's righteousness more than anyone's ever hungered and thirsted, who was the ultimate peacemaker, who is the ultimate merciful one. See, see, why can we be rich? It's because he became poor for us. Why can we be comforted? How do you know you can be meek and be comforted? It's because he was meek. Excuse me, he, he mourned and was thrown out. How how do you know you can be meek and inherit the earth? Jesus, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite of his grace, 
He did not not count himself a quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself so that you can become like him and not lose everything but inherit the earth. See, why will we see God's face? Jesus was pure in heart. He was single-minded, only thinking of the kingdom of God all the way in his most suffering moments on the cross. But how did God treat him? God rejected him. So that when you struggle to be pure in heart, you can know that the blessing of the gospel is still yours to grow into that because of how Jesus was rejected. Look, all of the promises of the gospel are yea and amen in Jesus so that they're given to us to become something that we can handle the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. About eight years ago, my, uh, my sister got married and uh, I was the minister to do the wedding and my wife was a bridesmaid and my children uh, were, were much younger and they were gonna be ring bearers. And if any of you have ever done that, uh, you can rejoice and hold hands with me at the, the horrible experience that always is. <laughs> to try to convince children to just walk down an aisle. That's all you have to do. You don't have to say anything and just stand somewhere. Just, just, just stand still. So uh, in order to get them to do this, you know, we had to tape a $10 bill at the end of the aisle. <laughs> like, if you just make it to here, there's a $10 bill there. And it's amazing how a prize can motivate somebody into a life of obedience. Here's what's so incredible about the gospel. Jesus was all of these things for you and I without any reward. Every promise given here for the qualifications of the kingdom and the life of the kingdom and the life of a disciple were taken away from him so that they can be yours. Look, this is Jesus' kingdom. It is not the secular world and it is not the religious life of the Pharisees. This is where we're going and this is what Christianity is through the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is uh, profound yet difficult teaching. We give thanks that you live this out for us so that it can be ours. That you modeled this to us first so it can become personal and internal. That it may be who we are as a church and be known for these things. Lord, in the South Bay, Lord, help us to know you this way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.